race of my life. Presented by Autosport. The most satisfying race I ever had was the 1960 French Grand Prix at Reims, where we downed the Ferrari team. People said that there was no way we could beat the Ferrari V6s with a low-line Cooper because it's a very fast circuit. It was their track and there was no way we were going to win. I had other ideas. These are the words of the late F1 legend Jack Brabham describing his thoughts on the 1960 French Grand Prix, which he won for Cooper. This pick, which the Triple World Champion selected for his Race of My Life to Autosport magazine in 2009, is the latest in our Race of My Life podcast series. I'm your host, Alex Karanorkas, Autosport's Grand Prix editor, and with me today is Autosport's chief editor, Kevin Turner. How are you, Kev? Very good, thank you. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. Another another old one, which I'm sure you you were going to mention at some point, so I thought I'd get it in early. That's this is your, your favourite thing, and 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 also you've done a you've done a feature of Jack Brabham's top ten races already, so you're the perfect person to ask about this. Yeah, so I read his um, autobiography that he did just after he retired. Uh, when the flag drops, I would recommend it. It's one of the best driver autobiographies. It's an interesting one actually. He's got a slightly different take on racing to a lot of drivers because of his technical and engineering background. So um, it's definitely worth worth the read. But he just he does throughout drop the odd hint here or there as to the races he thinks uh, were worth worth mentioning because he's not one of these people that went through it race by race some autobiographies are just oh and then we went to Silverstone and I did this and then we went somewhere else his isn't like that so um, yeah you have to look a bit harder for the gems in there oh, that's good I mean just sorry to get side- sidetracked ever so slightly very early on but I do appreciate a, a, a sporting autobiography in particular that doesn't go chronologically I just think they just make better things, to, things they just make better reading yeah, sort of. Sometimes, if you go by topic or good anecdote, I think you need to, you do need something to tie it together. And obviously, chronology is the easiest thing. Um, but yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, yeah, you you don't really necessarily need a blow by blow account. Um, you you want the interesting, and he doesn't fall into that trap. So. I see, I see. For, for any listeners wondering, I recommend Alistair Cook, the former uh, England cricket captain's autobiography. It's very good for a, a non-chronological sporting autobiography. But anyway, as I said, wildly sidetracked, wildly sidetracked. Let's get back to the 1960 French Grand Prix at Reims. Uh, it was the sixth out of 10 races that year, including the Indy 500, one of the anomalous races at the start of Formula One World Championship. Um, Brabham had been on zero points until the fourth race at Zandvoort, which he won. And he then went on to win five in a row including this race at Reims, which was the third of those five. So, I mean, it, it was it was a pivotal run, wasn't it, that, that brought him the second world title? Yeah, so I think um, they realised at the start of the season, the very first race at the old T51 Cooper that he'd won the world championship in the year before, was going to get overtaken by the new, the new cars, in particular Colin Chapman's Lotus 18, which is the first Formula 1 Lotus, which, which worked, basically. Um, and... Uh, so that that was key, bringing the T53 low line in, uh, which is actually a much nicer looking car as well. Uh, and the other thing that, that was really b- important for Brabham's uh, title push was Sterling Moss having a, a wheel fall off his Lotus at Spa and put him in hospital for a while and he missed, missed some races, during which you know, Brabham cleaned up. I'm not saying that Brabham wouldn't have won the championship anyway, um, but because he was such already on uh, good form. But it made it it made it pretty easy um, because he, that left his his other uh, well the rivalry in this particular race that we're going to be talking about Ferrari, which had a, a, an increasingly outdated piece of machinery uh, in the team. 
Indeed, I think we'll come on to uh, to discuss that increasingly outdated bit of machinery uh, because it comes. It's quite key when you look at the the results of this race. But it was it's basically a three way fight between Brabham and the two Ferraris. Yeah, and in particular, um, Phil Hill. So Phil Hill, Wolfgang von Trips, um, and I think the one sort of um, was he under the most pressure. I think Phil Hill certainly was sort of the uh, had the bit between his teeth. Uh, that day and it was expected one of the reasons that Jack I think picked this race out is because it was one of the last circuits very high speed circuit it's basically like a sort of a huge sort of triangle really it's got two tight corners but the rest of it's either straight or very fast uh, curves and it was sort of regarded as one of the last circuits where the front engines but more powerful Ferrari Dinos would be able to beat the Coopers and the Lotuses and um, I think that Brabham rather liked the idea of playing, uh, sort of playing the underdog. Yeah, you can you can sort of sense that in his words at the start where I introduced it, it was like, oh, they're expecting to dominate. Well, we'll, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't. It was only really a three-way fight for half the race, though, because uh, you know they they were there were different there were different moments where Brabham was 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 good and able to get away, and then then Hill would come back at him. It wasn't quite a start to finish battle because uh, a gearbox drama strikes the two Ferraris. Yeah, so I think um, Bram picked it up partly because, well, it was a great fight up to that point. And then, of course, he's the one that, that comes out on top. I mean, there's a key uh, key moment in the race where, uh, I mean, very very basically, the Ferrari would have had more straight line speed, but the Cooper could have got into its toe um, and also had a much lower frontal area. So Bram said he was actually able to still, even at high speed, pull out and go past before the braking area. Um, yeah, because it would have been if you looked at, if you looked at the fronts of the two cars, you'd see that the coupe is much smaller, I think, um, and obviously it was better under braking as well. Uh, and Phil Hill at one point just gets some, gets a bit carried away and tries to outbreak Brabham in the Cooper, locks up and goes skating past him. And Brabham actually says it's very lucky that I happened to just check at that moment because if I'd turned in, it, they, they you know, they'd have crashed and they'd have probably both been out. But I think that's sort of. That's the beginning of the end, if you like. You know, Brabham knows that he's got it then, and yeah, obviously both Ferraris fail, and he's left. You know, he's left well clear. And I think it was a Cooper one, two, three, four in the end. So it was a, yeah, it, it was a a, a route at, at a circuit that Ferrari would have gone thinking, yeah, we've got a good chance here. It certainly was. He wins at the end by forty eight point three seconds, and yes, as you said, Cooper climax one, two, three, four. But interestingly, climax engines in the back of the top eight finishers and in your in your feature assessing uh, Brabham's top 10 races you describe this race as the age of the front engine F1 car was over which is quite a it's quite a powerful statement there but you know that's a bit dramatic isn't it yeah well in 1959 the 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 Ferraris had been competitive Tony Brooks had been in the championship fight to the very end uh, with Brabham and uh, Sterling Moss in the privateer Rob Walker Cooper Uh, but 1960 they really weren't competitive at most circuits uh, and the Ferrari was still the best front engine Grand Prix car. You give a shout out to the four wheel drive Ferguson, but it never really, never really did anything. World Championship races, it won a non Championship race at Orton Park. But um, so the Ferrari was really the last front running front engine car, uh, and that was really the last opportunity for it. Um, they did win uh, Phil Hill's first Grand Prix win. Actually, was at was at Monza, um, but that was a that was a race where all the British teams boycotted it because of the banking cynics would have suggested they knew that they were going to get beaten there anyway um but uh but yeah in terms of a proper fight with a full grid of grand prix cars that was probably the last chance that that the front engine cars had to make an impact 
and and when Cooper beat them there as well, it was that was it. I mean, by then Ferrari was already developing the the shark nose for the following year anyway. So, yeah, that was it was the last the last hurrah really, nineteen sixty for the front engine called Precar. Indeed, and obviously, as, as we said, it was uh, it was quite a run that Brabham was on. He goes on to win two more races in in his streak. Uh, but was, this is the first time by winning at Reims, he takes the well, he shares the championship lead with Bruce McLaren on twenty four points. And then when he wins at the next race uh, in Portugal, he, he he takes a lead that he doesn't lose, and he goes on to take his uh, his second world title. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a dominant one in the end, um, really. And um, yeah, I think I think on that uh, uh, on, on that race. Uh, it was quite probably the year before the Ferrari team had been correct. Tony Brooks had dominated the race, um, and the Coopers hadn't quite managed to do it. So this was, yeah, that was another. Just going back to the, that was the sign that even even on a high speed circuit, you needed the engine behind you know behind the driver. But yeah, in terms of a championship fight, there there wasn't really one. Uh, Moss was competitive when he came back. The Ferraris weren't weren't competitive. Um, and I think you know, Jack Brown was always going to beat Bruce McLaren ac- across the season. Um, so, uh, yeah, the championship fight wasn't there, but obviously he enjoyed that particular race. Although he did, he did in his race of my life, I actually changed, I'm going to admit to changing the copy for the, for the version that's gone up on allsport.com is that he claims that he hit 200 miles an hour in the T53 and I'm I'm pretty sure if you, you know, with, with other researchers, I think that may be memory playing tricks. I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't have been able to do 200 miles an hour, even pulling out the toe of the Ferrari. So, yeah, I did, I did take that out because I thought I need to, that needs to be verified before that, that can go in. Autosport editor disagrees with F1 legend. Interesting. Interesting there, Kev. Bold. Bold, <laughs> I would say. Um, well, there we go. I mean, just very quickly on that title battle, it's interesting. Uh, there's a great reference book that I know you have as well, Kev, which uh, um, is on the uh, looks at the first, it sort of ranks the first 1,000 races of the Formula One World Championships. Very good book. I do recommend it. I think we should plug that for Roger Smith because he's done, he's really helped me out with these Race of My Life podcasts. It's a very, very useful book. I've, I've written about it before in pieces as well. Mm. Yes. But anyway, just interesting is that it, it, there's, a, there's a graph, a, a points graph at the start of every season showing, charting how the the, you know the the title fight plays out what's interesting about this one is that Brabham is on zero for so long and then just shoots through into into the lead that he never loses yeah it's uh it's just one of those seasons that didn't get going for him and then well, I think that, that potential was, was always going to be there once I mean I think it was on the flight home from Argentina where John Cooper and Jack Brabham that's had a, a long flight I can tell a, you that. yes <laughs> had a conversation about what they were going to do and the result was the T53 and um, uh, and I think that the moment that car came out, obviously it needed to be sorted out and, and made reliable, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, once he was up and running and I say when Moss was out of the equation, it was kind of a one-way traffic really. Absolutely. Well, let's hear again uh, the words of Jack Brabham from his Race of My Life feature, which as Kev said, you can read on autosport.com and then we'll assess what other races he might have picked for his Race of My Life. To win was fantastic. I got a lot of satisfaction out of it and it was my third win in a row on the way to the 1960 title. Fairly, uh, fairly summing up what we'd already gone over there with Jack Brabham, but there we go. Uh, now let's, let's, let's move on to basically your feature, Kev, the top 10 races that, uh, of Jack Brabham's career. Uh, we'll start with a race I think you put as number one above the 1960 French Grand Prix at Reims, which is the 1966 German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring where uh, Brabham qualifies fifth and ends up winning. He calls it a shocking race, very dangerous in the wet conditions uh, to the point where he'd actually, he asked to get extra grooves cut into his tyres to help clear the water out of the way. And it's just quite an epic battle between him and John Surtees. 
Yeah, um, you summed up well why it, uh, why I put it at the top of the list. The, uh, for me, the the extra treads cut into it, I like because that's very Jack Brabham. That's very making sure you've got everything maximised before you started. You know, he's very good at me. He knew when he had a good package. And I think he's one of those drivers that rose to the occasion when he knew he had something good. You know, he pretty much admits that actually in his in his book that, you know, if if, if he knew things were together, then he he could fight at the front. But I don't think he was someone to drag a, a mediocre car high up the field. Um, but he, you know, the the, the nineteen sixty six season was a shambles for lots of teams, and um, but it wasn't for Brabham. They got the Brabham Repco, was a good package which Jack was key in putting together. Um, and then he got those, yeah, those extra treads because of the the rain at the Nurburgring, and of course we've got the Nurburgring factor again. Um, yeah, we always we've talked about this a lot of times. I don't think it's a coincidence that the circuit comes up so often in people's race my lives or in our discussions about what they should have picked. Um, and yeah, as you say, um, it was a, it was a, a fight for most of the race with um, with John Surtees in the Cooper, uh, and Surtees was magnificent around Nürburgring his own race in my life was the 63 German Grand Prix there he won the Nürburgring 1000 kilometers there he was he was very good and you would probably said he was better than Nürburgring than Jack uh, Brabham's uh, record there wasn't as good the first time he'd been in a major race there I think was at 58,000 kilometers sharing with Moss in an Aston Martin and had sort of lost so much ground Moss basically had to do virtually the whole race himself to make sure they won so that shows you how far he'd, he'd come in the subsequent years to be able to go toe to toe with with Surtees and, 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 and basically have the upper hand in the end Surtees um, Surtees has a problem with, with, with a few laps to go I think he has a, a clutch problem which means he falls away um, and, but, but Brabham you know, didn't look like losing it anyway um, it's just a shame that you didn't get that absolute right to the end you know winner 14 15 lap race 15 lap it was race at the Nürburgring by a second and a half or something would have been would have been great but uh, yeah he, he picked it out in his autobiography as being one of those special moments and I think any win at the Nürburgring is, is going to be up there I'm sure he would have had to do more driving if you like on that day than he did at, at, at Reims, which is more about racecraft and being in the toe of the Ferrari. So sort of a slightly different challenge of, of, of driving. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, in, in your in your top 10 feature that just how far ahead that they even, because he's got a big winning margin because of Surtees' issue, but it, the, the rest of the field, the third place finisher is, is, is over, well over two minutes behind Surtees. So they're well clear. Yeah, and the third place finisher... Uh, is Jochen Rint. I mean, it's not. We're not talking about Makeway, you know, as a future world champion. He's two and a half minutes behind. So yeah, it's just an, it's just again, it's one of those epic circuits. And um, yeah, the great drivers seem to have uh, at least one uh, epic Nordschleife performance in them somewhere. And that was yeah, that was Brabham's. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, behind that, in your top ten, behind the 1966 German Grand Prix, you obviously did rank the the 1960 French Grand Prix, and below that is the 1970 British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, where you say he loses the race twice. How does he do that? Oh, uh, yes. So this he described this as the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, disappointments of his career. So bear in mind that he's 44 at this point. He's been around for you know a decade and a half. Um, you know, a lot of people would have thought he was past his best. He probably was past his best, but again, he knew coming into 1970 that the car was going to be good. It was the first monocoque uh, Brabham Grand Prix car, BT33. And he hadn't been able to hold it. He wanted to get Jochen Rint back at Brabham. Then he was going to retire, but that didn't work out. Colin Chapman held on to Rint at Lotus. So he said, oh, all right, then another year. Here we go. And he and the car were competitive um, at the start of the season. Uh, he won in South Africa. And uh, uh, there's a great race at, at Brands Hatch where he basically is in a duel with Rint in the Lotus 72. 
So rising star in a revolutionary car that's going to be winning Grand Prix four years later. He he's tied to its uh, tied to its gearbox because Rin has gone past him earlier on in a nice move. There's a pictures of it actually. There's not much room at all for Rin to get his car through at Paddock Hill Bend, uh, and he stays with him. Eventually, um, gets a run on him. Uh, I think Rin misses a gear. Bam goes into the lead, disappears. He's beaten him. He's got it all won, and then he runs out of fuel on the very last lap, at the very last couple of corners of the very last lap, and he rolls over the line in second place. So that's the first time he loses the race. And then the second time is that it's uh, somebody spots that the Lotus's rear wing is too high for the regulations. Um, uh, Brad Brabham's quite funny about that in, uh, in, in his accounts of it because he, he he says as soon as Colin Chapman goes in to see the stewards, he knows that Rint's going to get the win back. <laughs> and he said, I don't really want to win like that anyway. But yeah, it looked like he was going to get the win back because the Lotus was going to be disqualified. But I think, I don't know how hypocritical or otherwise it is, but the story goes that um, some Lotus mechanics may have leaned on the struts of the rear wing so that it was bent enough to be the correct height. And then they had an argument about, oh, you've come up with so many different measurements, how can you be sure? Oh, all right, then, yeah, you can have the win. So um, probably not the sort of argument you'd have now. I don't think that the FIA would let you get away with that sort of thing anymore. But No, I'm not sure leaning on rear wings is uh, is ever really allowed, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> just at, at any point, just not a good idea. Uh, just think think how much money that would cost if you broke it. Yeah, I mean, Brabham is quite clear that he didn't want to win it that way. He, he, the reason he was so gutted was because he'd done all the hard work on track. He had got Rin beaten and then it was taken away from him um, Yeah, because of, because of running out of fuel. Again, there are a couple of different accounts as to why that is. Um, but basically, he, he felt that it was the car was running slightly too rich, the settings, and that he'd uh, he'd run out of fuel. So, yeah, that was that was a big disappointment, but a fantastic drive for a, you know a veteran against um, you know the rising star who obviously well he's already a star, really. He's on his way to winning his world championship. Absolutely, it's certainly a, a galling defeat or two defeats in that race. Now, the next race on your list is actually a, an F two race. It's, it's it's not a Formula One World Championship race. Uh, the nineteen sixty four Alton Park Gold Cup, which Brabham wins for Brabham. How did that go down, and why is that so high up on your list? It's basically high up on the list because he beats Jim Clark in a straight fight. Uh, so you know, I think in the past we talked about you know if you if you look at who finished second in a race yeah that gives you some idea um you know john surtees his choice was the only grand prix clark ever finished second in so he's the you know we, we quite like that fact when we talked about the surtees one and this is an f2 race at yeah alton park you say gold cup switch from the f1 to f2 and there's a four car fight early on um three brabham's graham hill denny holman jack brabham and jim clark in a lotus and they're swapping positions it must have been a fantastic race to watch um, and eventually, but it, it sort of boils down to a, a Brabham versus Clark fighting. Clark's hounding Bram, hounding Bram, hounding Bram. Bram's a very difficult guy to pass in days where overtaking was supposed to be easier. He was sort of renowned for it. Um, and uh, but Clark fight, finds a way through, got way through, and then Bram immediately repassed him, and uh, uh, and they just kept it up all the way to the very end, and he won by point two of a second on the line. So you know, great drivers track against. You know, against you know, one of the all-time greats. I think the reason I didn't put it any higher wasn't actually because it was an F2 race. It was more because the reading the contemporary reports, you do get the feeling that Clark is probably driving with a slight car disadvantage. Bradham's probably got the slightly better car, and Clark's kind of making up for it with his sort of with his driving, um, so it evens it out slightly. 
but uh, even so to to have that uh he was i think he was a great battler brabham and that was a great example of uh you know not cracking under pressure from you know one of the one of the absolute top liners of the era I mean, he, Brabham does have that sort of hard man reputation in sort of on and off the track, really. Would that be fair to say? I think he was fair. I think people liked him um, off the track. But on the track, he was, um, yeah, you'd, he'd be what sort of Sterling Moss would call a racer. Yeah, he wasn't someone that if you came past him, they'd be psychologically broken and that was it. You've, you'd beaten them. He, he'd, you, you had to make sure you had him beaten. Um, yeah, because he was, he was sort of a never say, never say die attitude. Um, and, uh, yeah, look at how long his career was you know he started off in little um well in terms of the world championship in small small engines you know rear engine coopers and then he's you know he's still winning races in the dfv era with basically slicks and wings so yeah adaptable and dogged and pragmatic and all those things that people have said about him almost brabham cliches really Indeed. I mean, racer in that context from Sterling Moss is almost a backhanded compliment. It means feisty, right? That's what, that's what he actually means. Um, I don't think Sterling would have seen it as a backhanded compliment. He he saw drivers as being either drivers or racers, and he had certainly a lot more time for racers than he did drivers. But yeah, I mean, Brabham did occasionally get accused of, you know, he, he was known for flicking stones and things up at up at his rivals. Um, yeah, how deliberate it was. I said he certainly was a canny and wily character. Um, let's put it that way. Um, you had to you had to work hard to beat him. I think, and Clark worked hard that that day at Alton Park, and and uh, but failed. Indeed, indeed. Well, for the next pick, we jump back to the nineteen seventy Formula One season. It's the South African Grand Prix at Kyalami. Brabham goes from third to first to win. What can you tell us about that race and, and why yeah, was I mean, that so high up? Well, I mean, two minds about it. In that uh, I do, it, it does make me wonder uh, how good the BT thirty three was, um, which was good partly because of Jack's work. So you know, fair enough. But yeah, he um, he, he doesn't have a very good a very good getaway. Um, sorry, I think his getaway is okay, but he then gets sort of involved in a first corner incident, and he was um, yeah, it was he was a, a safe drive. He didn't take unnecessary risks. In fact, that's why I didn't like driving for him because he was convinced that. Brabham would make sure everything was screwed together properly, which certain other teams of the era maybe weren't quite so good on. Um, and uh, and he, he does a couple of slow laps to make sure nothing's going to fall off. And then he gets on with it. Um, and he charges through the field, I think sixth, passes everyone, gets up in second, six-second gap to Jackie Stewart in the lead, catches him, passes him, wins the race. Thank you very much. Uh, so there aren't many people that close down Jackie Stewart to uh, pass, them to, pass him to win a Grand Prix. That didn't happen very often. Um, the caveat to this one is I'm pretty convinced that Stuart's probably only in the lead because of Stuart as opposed to the March 701 which I don't think was a particularly fabulous it was a very good first F1 car for a new constructor but I think it probably wasn't wasn't that superb um, but yeah again ageing uh, yeah and Brabham hadn't won a, a world championship Grand Prix for a while as well so he'd have certainly been considered past his best by then um, but that really was a, a taste of what was to come in 1970 where a lot of races where Brabham was a, a real contender for, for the race wins. Absolutely. Well, we're going to jump back for your next point, back to 1964, the Aintree 200. What can you tell us about that race? And why is it you're particularly obsessed with 1964 and 1970? <laughs> um, well, it's just where, it's just where the, the reports and the accounts led me, Alex. I see, um, I see. <laughs> well, I actually had the good fortune of doing a, doing a podcast on Jack Brabham uh, with Ian Titchmarsh um, a year or two ago. And this was a race that he said I probably should have put number one. 
Um, it was his his it was his push for, or I certainly sh- thought I should have put it higher um, because it was a it was a non championship Formula One race at Aintree. Um, I would put in there that the caveat is that Ian was there, and he always tends to rate the races he was at, which is which is fair enough. There are an awful lot of them, so fair play to him. But um, yeah, so it becomes a a Clark versus Brabham fight. Brabham has the lead early on. Clark catches him. Um, neither of them were on pole. Graham Hill was on pole, but uh, they're both quicker than him in the race. And Clark gets ahead of Brabham and tries to pull away and really cranks up the pace. And Brabham goes with him. It's like what I was saying before about about just not giving in, just fights, 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 and actually gets back ahead, which turns out to be crucial um, when they come to Melling Crossing, which is a famous famous part of the circuit. Um, and uh, Clark catches the back mark in the wrong place and ends up having a crash. Now, a number of times that Clark crashed out of the race, uh, yeah, you could definitely do it on one hand. Um, and, you know, uh, Brabham basically forced the issue. I was ahead of him already, even at the point of crashing, so it wasn't like he inherited the win at that point. So, again, there's another example of going toe-to-toe with the the, you know, the era's benchmark and coming out on top. The next race is also a non-championship Formula 1 race, the 1969 BRDC International Trophy at Silverstone, which Brabham wins is on pole position as well. How, was that? How did that one go down? So this was a wet race, and Brabham's probably not one of those drivers that immediately comes to mind when you're talking about great wet weather drivers. Um, but but actually, he was very good in the wet, certainly a lot better than Denny Holm, who was his teammate um, at Brabham um, for a couple of years in F1 and F2. Um, and his team on this occasion is Jackie Ix, who, as we've discussed before, Alex, is a wet weather master. Half of his uh, 10 races that he picked out to us, or to Gary Watkins, were were wet weather races. Um, yeah, he was superb in the wet, but uh, in the same car, um, he has a fight with... Um, Ix has a fight with Frank Williams run Brabham for second and they're miles behind Jack. Jack just clears off. Um, and it probably wouldn't be that a remarkable a race um, had it not been for the fact that Jochen Rint also puts in one of his special drives. He has a problem early on that clears uh, and he comes charging through the field in in, in the way that he, he sometimes got in sort of second half of races like Monaco 1970 as well. And he's closing, closing, closing. Brabham responds, it all looks under control rinse closing but he's not going to make it and then uh and then Bradman runs out of fuel again but this time instead of coasting across the line in second after rinse gone past he coasts across the line with a dead engine before rinse arrives so it's, it's basically the same kind of story but uh but this time with a happier ending so rinse would no doubt look back at well in uh, the 1970 british grand prix as being a poetic justice for reversing that fortune well, perhaps as I say, they were um, they were quite good friends. Rint liked Brabham a lot, and it was he thought seriously. I've been doing some work about Jochen Rint because um, it's obviously it's fifty years this year since he won his championship, and then was obviously uh, unfortunately killed at Monza. Um, and he really did seriously consider going back to Brabham for nineteen seventy, but he felt that he had a better chance of winning the world championship with Lotus, and Colin Chapman could offer him a lot more money than Jack Brabham could. Um, so I, I don't think. Um, yeah, I don't know whether he'd have... He, I doubt he'd have begrudged Brabham. I can imagine Rint sort of being almost of the opinion, well, if I've won because you've run out of fuel, that you know that should have been your win anyway. I think they were both quite magnanimous in that way. Fair enough. I look forward to, to reading your work, as I always do, but particularly <laughs> uh, something is no doubt well-researched um, as your work on... I've spent a long time on the Rint one, I must admit. We've, we've had a slight... Um, I started at the end of last year, and obviously I've had to put that research to one side because of other things that have been going on in 2020 so uh, hopefully i'll come back to it uh, as uh, racing resumes 
Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the next race is a really interesting one, this. Back in 1960, the New Zealand Grand Prix at Ardmore. Brabham goes from 24th on the grid to win. So it's obviously quite a race, but probably a bit more to it than that. Well, I, I partly wanted to put... Well, partly because it's another one of these slightly obscure non-championship F1 races, which is you've probably worked out by now I, qu- I quite like <laughs> and it's also, got s- obvious. it's also got Sterling Moss involved in it so yeah, that's so also why you like it yes well it, this has got this ticks two boxes really got it onto the list one is that he goes from 24th to 3rd on lap 1 now I, I want to see that lap I want the onboard of that lap I know, obviously it doesn't exist but uh, even if you say that the rest of the field I, I think that obviously the, the quality of the field was not of a of a world championship Grand Prix uh, you know, a, a level, but nevertheless, that's that's incre- that's incredible progress. Um, so that kind of got my attention when I was sort of looking through all these races. But then the reason it got onto the list was because he then has a, a duel with Moss, um, and it's very difficult to call who's going to win it um, until until Moss's car breaks. So um, oh, and then and then actually towards the end, Brabham's own engine is incredibly hot. And he almost gets caught by Bruce McLaren. So it's got a bit of everything. It's got an incredible start from a, I would call it one of the charges that you like, Alex, except I don't know whether, if you've done all the charge in one lap, it's, it's not sure whether it ticks that box or not really, but then it's, yeah, so he's got the charge from the back, fight, great fight for the lead with with uh, one of the great drivers and then a, a dramatic just holding on as the car falls to pieces around him across the line. So yeah, quite a, quite a fun race, I thought. Well, what I like about this, because as, as you say, I, do, you know, I have said many times before on this podcast how much I love a charging drive. It's the fact that he goes from 24th to win. It's not like he goes from, okay, say 24th, finishes fifth. That's still a fine effort. He just goes, he goes the whole way and he's so far down. And yeah, what, what that first lap must have been incredible. I think uh, with the, uh, the, 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 the accolade of Ayrton Senna at Donington in 93, this has got to rival it. Okay, not a world championship, not a world championship race, but... Uh, I would, I would like tongue, to say, tongue in cheek there, I should say. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think the quality of the, that field did fall away quite a lot after the first three or four cars. Um, but even so, just finding the room, like I just, yeah, apparently he put his car at an angle at the back on the back row. So you, right, I'm going that way, <laughs> even if it's on the grass, I'm going that way to get past them. But yeah, obviously, obviously worked. Absolutely. Well, the next uh, the next one we're going to discuss two more races that Brabham that you are the USS into Brabham's top ten races, and this one is the 1959 Monaco Grand Prix, which Brabham wins again for Cooper. Yeah, so he felt conflicted about this um, because in uh, in his own uh, actually it wasn't his autobiography. He he actually had a book published in 1960 called Jack Brabham's Motor Racing Book, uh, which is fabulous. Um, and in that he I can, imagine, I can imagine you being given that as a child sort of that sort of uh, I did actually buy that in adulthood but yes ah. I, that is that's probably fair yeah that is the sort of <laughs> random book that I would have been clinging to as a school schoolboy. yeah um, so in that he picks he criticises his own driving in that but then um, Adrian Ball which I've mentioned a couple of times he edited a book for the Jim Clark Foundation in 1974 called My Greatest Race so clearly we've stolen that idea Um uh, and Brabham picks the 59 Monaco Grand Prix, so he's conflicted about it. The reason being that obviously it's a very important race in terms of milestone. If you're picking the emotional importance of a race, this is his first world championship you know, win, and it's the Monaco Grand Prix. So clearly, it's going to tick that box. Um, the reason that he was critical of it is that he basically let Sterling Moss get way too far out front. He'd had some reliability problems the previous race. He was worried about overheating. So um, when the two of them and Jean Beres Ferrari go off at the start. Um, both of them get past the Ferrari 
and then Moss clears off. Brabham's a bit, oh, I'm not sure, oh, and, and doesn't go for it. And Moss has a minute's lead. Uh, and then the car breaks. But Brabham kind of said, there's no way, there's no way you're going to take a minute out of Sterling Moss, basically. So he, he kind of felt like he'd, he'd given the race away unnecessarily. Um, it kind of popped back on the list for me when uh, Brooks then challenges him towards the end and Bram speeds up and then laps faster than anyone, including Moss has gone previously on an oily track. So he could do it. It was kind of almost proof that he had perhaps thought himself out of it earlier on in the race, but kind of got himself together and then won. Um, and sort of just to finish it off, in, in as often happened in those days, something was wrong. Um, his, his pedals were incredibly hot from the radiator so um yeah he was virtually burning his feet driving around as well so another one of these races with lots of stuff going on indeed and do you think that that sort of chimes with what you were saying at the beginning about him needing to you know needing things to be pretty perfect for that to happen uh, and that but that extends to that race to he needed the the challenge later on from brooks to get him into that zone of of everything's good so i can really i can lap as as fast as i can here yeah, possibly. He certainly says, um, uh, and not just in relation to that race, he says that there are certain certain events I probably didn't win that I might have done had I known less about the machinery because he knew so much and was so invested in it. And that was one of his great strengths. So he won three world championships because of that strength. But he said there were also days where I was probably thinking about the engine temperature, the oil temperature, the brakes, the whatever it was, instead of just getting on with it and doing the job. Um, but I think he, yeah, as you say, when when there's a sniff of victory, this is true of all the great drivers, whatever, however they come to it. If there's a sniff of victory, then then they're in the zone, aren't they? You know, Fernando Alonso is like that as well. You know, he he's kind of the epitome for me of if there's a half a chance, he just something happens. And I think, yeah, there, there's no way having made that what he considered to be error to let Moss get that far ahead to then be given the lead. He wasn't going to let Brooks come and nick it from him at the end. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's come to the last race we're going to discuss uh, on this list. It's the 1961 Indy 500, which is not a race that Brabham wins, but it's his it's his performance here that he do, it does do so well, and it's so significant later on for another Formula One driver that is successful at Indy. Yeah, so um, he finished ninth, um, but he should have finished fifth or sixth, which I think sounds pretty impressive on your Indy 500 debut. Not many people manage that. Um, so yeah, Cooper were having a having a pretty terrible F1 season anyone that wasn't Ferrari or or Sterling Moss was having a pretty terrible season 61 really um so they decided to to go and give the give Indy 500 a try a slightly bigger climax engine it was really a modified F1 car really with yeah sort of slightly different tires from Dunlop bigger bigger climax engine and he went out there and um, I think to begin to start with he found it quite overwhelming he's in the middle of the pack the front engine roadsters um were much faster in a straight line and he to start we couldn't find a way you know anyone that's been in a gt3 race for the equalization you always want the car if the lap time's the same you want the car with the power because that's the one that's going to get you the overtaking done and he didn't have that but eventually he worked out ways he got more comfortable having those cars around him because remember we were quite different kind of scenarios to what he was used to um that he started picking them off and actually he would have finished much higher had it not been for the fact that he yeah, it just had two two big tire wear. Tire Dunlops weren't quite up to it, whereas Firestone had more experience at Indy, so the Roadsters, despite being heavier, didn't need quite the same amount of uh, number of stops. Um, so it was a good demonstration of his adaptability. Um, of what I found really interesting was that he came away from it thinking that a mid-engine car wasn't the thing to have for Indy because it wouldn't be able to take the you know the bigger engines required to be quick there. 
Um, obviously, that proved to be not the case within a couple of years when when Clark and Jim Clark and Lotus went over there. But yeah, um, I included it partly because it shows his adaptability, and partly because it's an easily forgotten race in um, you know in Brabham's and in, in Indy history, really, because everyone always thinks about Jim Clark and Graham Hill going over there and winning it. Absolutely, no, certainly very worthy of inclusion. Well, we've come to the point in the episode again where uh, we have to make a choice about whether we agree with a legendary driver going where you're going to well, jump you've got, in. Unless you've got a favourite that jumps out at you, you've got a three-way choice here. The power you hold is even greater than normal. So you can go for go for mine, which is 1966 German Grand Prix, Jack Brams himself, 1960 French Grand Prix, or you could even go for Ian Titchmarsh's 1964 Aintree 200 for all of the reasons we've discussed on a race on Race of My Life before I am going to go with your pick the 1966 oh, yeah. I wasn't German sure what you were I really wasn't sure I think it's the it's the Nürburgring factor and it's the fact that he beat Surtees okay he has a, has a problem late on but he doesn't look like he's going to lose the race who as you say was a Nürburgring specialist and uh, and yeah that, 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 that edges it for me I think yeah sorry Ian Sorry, Ian, if you're listening. No. <laughs> uh... I, I like it because it also, and I know this isn't necessarily the reason you'd pick uh, pick the number one, but I like it because it brings together a lot of things that are good about Brabham. So he's, you know, he's he, the car is competitive and one of the best cars on the grid because of the work that he's done and been pragmatic with Repco to get the engine. Then he's done the the, the extra treads, in, you know, the extra cuts in the tyres because he wants to make sure it clears that water that little bit better. And then also. You've, you've got to drive it. It's the Nürburgring and he's done it as well as anyone, you know, with John Surtees there. So it kind, of, it kind of does, it shows him, I think, all his attributes off nicely. And of course, on his way to his, his third world championship as well. So, yeah, I'm pleased that you've agreed, but I wasn't expecting that you would. No, no, no. And there was certainly no no, no pressure was exerted on me to, to take Kev's pick there. I just think that, you know, I mean, maybe this is being too simplistic, but the fact that the Ferraris drop out at Reims in 1960 doesn't devalue it as a race, but it was like, it's, it's not like, you know what I mean they, they're gone quite early on in the race it's lap 31 and sort of do you know what I mean like that sort of I think yeah and I think also um, he, he picks it because it's kind of a milestone one it was a kind of a um, yeah we're hoping that hopefully we can do Alan Jones uh, one at some point and his pick is is very much a sort of an up yours given the situation that's happening and I kind of feel like Jack Brabham's choice is a bit similar um, whereas I think probably the the best drive was probably was probably the yeah you know, the Nurburgring or even maybe one of the nineteen seventy races, which which I do appreciate. You know, it's really it's really lovely doing this podcast because you get to you just get a different sense of why these great drivers have picked these these different races. And it's you know when when we talk about oh one's this the nineteen sixty six German Grand Prix is number one and nineteen sixty Reims is number two. We're not exactly saying like. It's not saying that one was good and one was bad. It's like these are all brilliant. It's just this, just for, for for certain specific reasons that just edges it ahead because it's also also fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully this will encourage people to go and you know read reports or watch old footage or whatever or something because there is a lot of there are a lot of fantastic races out there. Which um, obviously when you're you're going on to the next weekend and the next weekend and you know all the stuff that's happening now, you can can get forgotten. Um, but obviously the last few months for reasons obviously we'd, we'd rather didn't happen we've had a bit of a chance to look back at you know, some of these great races um, and I think I think it's worth doing 
Absolutely. I mean, when you mentioned, we were talking about the 1916 British Grand Prix earlier and, and Rinton and, uh, and Brabham and that overtake at Paddock Hill Bend. It's, it just, it sent me straight back to national races I'd covered there. And I'd not known that, you know, you, you can go to these places and just think of the history and the, the famous drives and the famous people that have been there. So yeah, when, when we are all allowed out to do as we, as we please, as we all hope, you know, I would recommend everyone gets down to a racetrack and uh, see some see something going on and Browns Hatch still does have uh, uh, not only does it have racing it still hosts uh, historic F1 cars so yeah have a look at the uh, the MSV website and uh, yeah find when the meetings are on absolutely well before you do that go to autosport.com and read Jack Brabham's Race of My Life feature uh, Kev thank you very much for joining me thank you lovely always good to have you and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Race of My Life podcast Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere where and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus